This is the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast from Advanta IRA, where we show you how to explore investments beyond Wall Street and open your eyes to new options for your portfolio. It's time to take control and give yourself the freedom to choose where you invest your money. Welcome to another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. As always, my name is Alex Purdy, and today we are pleased to welcome on John Inslee with Jay Inslee Financial. And we're going to be taking a little bit of a departure from uh, the normal uh, content that we cover, which uh, has a lot of flavor on alternative investments within retirement plans and IRAs, but still being able to bring you valuable content and how you can utilize other avenues of uh, capital generation to invest in. And I always hate to kind of coin uh, real estate as an alternative asset. I mean, heck, the Romans... <laughs> Saw value in real estate, so and they weren't buying Microsoft and IBM. So uh, again, I like to you know again bring a well-rounded viewpoint of personal finance and uh, investing in things that are outside the stock market on this podcast. So John, thank you very much for being with us on here today. Give us a little bit of background about yourself and kind of how you came to be in the market that you are dealing with insurance and different avenues that people may not necessarily be familiar with. Thanks, Alex. I'm uh, super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So um, my story really kind of begins in the, the mid to late 90s. Um, I was working with a company that uh, had an employee stock ownership plan. And uh, if anyone remembers the late 90s, that was the buildup to the, the, the tech bubble was expanding. And so we were going to do an IPO. It was super exciting. Everyone was going to be, you know, rich beyond our wildest dreams. And then of course the, uh, the the bubble burst. So the IPO never happened. Everything kind of fizzled. And um, when I left that company, I did have a little money left in that in that ESOP plan. And uh, I did some calculation at that point, and realized that I was going to be exposed to some some pretty serious taxation later on uh, if I didn't do something different. And so I looked for an alternative and um, decided that uh, I bought a, a property in Washington State and started developing this little subdivision, five lot subdivision. And uh, the plan was to build spec homes on each of these lots. And uh, if you remember the mid 2000s, the, the buildup as the real estate bubble was expanding. So of course I had uh, as if appraisals that made, made this project look like it was just gonna be amazing. We we're gonna hit it out of the park. I was about, maybe halfway through building the first spec home on the first subdivided lot in 2008. And uh, things started going uh, going south at that point. And I made, obviously I made some big mistakes. I borrowed some money, tried to save the project, tried to keep it going. And in the, at, in the end, it failed spectacularly um, during the 2008 to 2009 uh, crash. And, um, and so that I'm grateful for that experience today, even though those were some pretty dark days um, for me personally, um, because it was a wake up call and it got me to start um, studying and learning and absorbing all the information that I could absorb and um, and learning some things uh, about the financial system and about real estate and about how some of these things um, are working. And and um, it really woke me up to, to how ignorant I was of so many things before this. Right. Um, and so during that period of time, I was on a webinar uh, one evening on one of the one of the things I was following, and this advisor was walking through this example. He had a couple and a and a home and their home equity, and then he started talking about a cash value life insurance policy and how that was building equity simultaneously. And he mapped this whole thing out, 
And um, at, at the time, I, I really kind of hated the idea of life insurance. I hated the idea of being worth more dead than alive, that kind of thing. A lot of people have that feeling. Um, but it was the first exposure I had that a cash value life insurance policy could be something other than a death benefit. And so that intrigued me. And um, I went down kind of that path and started studying more and, and learning more. And, and somewhere during that webinar, he uttered the words uh, bank on yourself or infinite banking. And um, so I, I, that led me to to some resources that explain what that was. So ultimately, I, I wound up setting up some uh, a policy that they that they described in those concepts. And and um, just got very passionate about that whole idea. I had been to many, many financial advisors over the years, and nobody had ever shared anything remotely similar to this concept of using um, using high cash value, low commission, dividend-paying whole life insurance as a platform um, for wealth building. So uh, after using my policy for a couple of years, I, I got um, I got pretty excited, and I was kind of ready for a career change. So I uh, got got licensed and for insurance and uh, completed some training programs, uh, both through the infinite banking um, folks and through uh, the bank on yourself agent training program. And I launched my practice, Jansley Financial in 2012. So my passion for the last uh, 11 and some odd years now um, has been helping people understand this concept, helping them implement this concept and um you know just just really trying to put the word out there that there are these alternatives it's not a fit for everyone um but where it is a fit it's a really good fit and so so that's my passion is just sharing this concept and helping people understand it and implement it fantastic well you definitely um and if you see me peeking down i'm, I'm taking notes so uh it's uh, it's one of Perfect. those things where uh, <laughs> i don't think i'm just like staring at my phone and texting people or, or scrolling through instagram <laughs> so um you know you brought up a well one i gotta say um what kind of luck you had to be in tech before 2001 and then also uh, trying to do spec homes before uh, the crash of 0607. So uh, I'm very happy that you are uh, doing something with your life now that seems to be working out very well because that seems to be some painful lessons that you certainly learned in your career. Um, but I'm very happy For that sure. I brought you to the point now and you obviously seem happy with it. So one thing I kind of want to just kind of go over initially is that, you know, everyone's heard of life insurance. If you haven't, then... I don't know what to tell you. Um, this is maybe a good place for you to be. So in general, you know, give me, give us kind of an overview. You know, if someone says life insurance, okay, you know, we understand what insurance is. It's in, you know, insuring against something to happen. You die and then there's a benefit paid. Um, but that's not exactly kind of the scope of what you're really getting into um, with what you mentioned of calf value life insurance and high cash value low commission stuff, which we'll get into in a minute. But maybe give people, you know, that are really green, really novice in this kind of, a you know, what you would say if someone said, hey, you know, you're talking about life insurance, what exactly is that? And then let's dive into kind of how it's not just a, you know, you have it, you pay your premiums, you die, your spouse, your children, someone gets a big fat check that's not taxable. So let's kind of start there and then build into the avenue of saying, hey, here's how these things can be utilized to benefit you while you're still alive, which I think is great because, you know, who doesn't mm -hmm. want to have some benefits while they're still, you know, above ground. Um, so let's kind of start there and uh, we'll see where it goes. You bet. So I think I think the kind of life insurance that most people are familiar with, <clears throat> excuse me, um, are is term insurance. So term life insurance is uh, kind of what you just described. You pay your premiums. There's a death benefit if you die, uh, and it's for a particular term. So it could be for ten years, fifteen years, twenty years, thirty years, that kind of thing. Uh, when the term comes to an end, you're however many years older, ten years or fifteen years older, and you can then get another term policy 
um, for another period of time at, of course, a higher rate because you're now older. So that's the that's the insurance I think most people have and that they're familiar with is that it's on some term you pay a premium and if something happens so it's it's uh it's catastrophe insurance right if uh, if you drop dead walk out in front of a bus whatever um, then there's a death benefit that's going to come into your beneficiaries and and help settle your affairs and maybe provide some lost income that kind of thing um, and that's what most people are familiar with what what people are aware of but not as familiar with is cash value life insurance. And so these would be, um, in my particular case, I focus on whole life insurance, uh, which is a life insurance contract that covers you for your whole life. So however long you live, um, it covers you. And the when you pay premiums into a whole life insurance policy, um, it provides the death benefit. And then there is also a cash value that builds up over time. And that cash value is uh, something you have access to while you're still living. And um, what a lot of people may have heard of are the types of whole life policies where that cash value takes quite some time to build up. So it might be 10 or 12 or 15 years in into that uh, contract before there's those cash values build up significantly. So when we talk about the cash value life insurance policies um, that I just mentioned with bank on yourself concept, uh, what we're doing is using some riders, I, I call them kind of modernized whole life, because we're using some riders where we take the premium and we divide it in the right proportions into these riders, and it builds that cash value much, much faster. Um, significant cash values even in the very first year. And so those cash values, as they build up in the policy, um, are accessible um, for, for various purposes, and we can get into more, more of those details as well. So there's yeah, a number of different kinds of cash value life insurance. Whole life is is the one I focus on, um, but that's really the two spheres: term term life insurance or or cash value or permanent life insurance. Okay, so just to kind of give a, a good compare and contrast, so your term life insurance basically say you have a ten year term, you pay your premiums, and if nothing happens within that period, does it just go away? Um, is it still in place, or do you have another policy kind of? Explain to that because I know there's different types of policies and different things happen. So does if you were to pay premiums into something like that, would you know? Again, I hate to use the word waste because you know if something happened, you did have that benefit. But what kind of happens to that if you just paid premiums for ten years into a term life and then ten years is up and you're still kicking around? What happens at that point? Yeah, I sort of uh, sometimes I sort of uh, tongue in cheek uh, would refer to term insurance as renting life insurance, right? So you're paying your premiums okay. for ten years. And at the end of the 10 years, if you're not dead, then um, that policy will uh, will go away. It'll stop. And so those premiums okay. were, were the cost of, of offsetting that risk for those 10 years. Gotcha. And for paying premiums like that, are those tax deductible or is it just an after-tax expense you have to bear? Uh, generally speaking, it's going to be an after-tax expense that, that you have to bear. Yikes. Okay, so let's transition. I think that's an easy enough concept for people to digest, um, which is good because I know insurance can get insanely complicated. Um, I've had a few friends that have been insurance uh, uh, insurance agents and, it's, and, and some family members, so glad that we could at least get some simple stuff out of the way first. So the next one that you mentioned is um, uh, term life, uh, or sorry, that was term life, and then we have cash balance with whole life. Um, basically meaning that you are insuring, you know, your existence for the entirety of your life, you know, from the per point that you 
essentially, you know, purchase that policy until you eventually, you know, the one constant in life is that we will die. The second is taxes. Um, so, you know, we have that and that builds up a cash value. So I think that's kind of, you know, again, the meat of what we want to get into is something that builds a cash value that you can access during the you know time that you are still, you know, above ground. So, you know, with that said, you know, you are going to be paying premiums for the entirety of your life, you know, I guess that would be kind of, you know, the for the comparative, you know, maybe the downside um, of it is that you are kind of entering into a contract that you have the potential to pay premiums for the rest of your life. And again, I might be hitting off the mark. Um, I'm sure you'll explain and kind of help, you know, bring us mm-hmm. into to where this actually matters. So let's kind of explain, you know, the, you know, starting off, you know, why this, again, I think the, the benefit is, is that, you know, you have access to this cash, but let's kind of get more into that of what you, you know, kind of came on here to talk about is that, you know, building a cash value that you can access, how exactly does that work? So let's start from the point that, you know, someone says, okay, this might be a better fit. What does it look like from the start of, you know, purchasing a policy like this, and then eventually getting into where you can access some of that benefit before you die? Absolutely. So the, the, the cash value buildup in, um, in a whole life policy is it's, it's partly a function of the actuarial calculations that go into how the policy is built. And that's extremely complicated. And I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole too much. Um, just know that there's some really smart math whiz actuaries that work for most of these life insurance companies that have been around for well over a hundred years. And, and, um, you know, these guys, kind of calculate out the costing and the the risk to the insurance company of when people will die. You know, an actuary can can't tell you when you're going to die, but they can tell with uncanny accuracy um, when a pool of 55 year old males uh, who live in this area and have this kind of job, et cetera, what percentage of them will die when, right? They're extremely accurate with a lot of that. and so that's how they they kind of build the policy. So there's a guaranteed cash value buildup that's based on that actuarial calculation. And then in addition to that, um, a mutual life insurance company uh, is a company where the policy owners are actually have an ownership stake, so to speak, in the insurance company. And so when those companies perform better than expected, they pay out a dividend that goes back to the policy owners not shareholders like they would in a stock company. Um, so, so we work with mutual companies mostly. And those dividends then also, uh, dividends are not guaranteed. So they're in addition to the guaranteed component and because it's based on the performance of that company. But to put that in perspective, uh, the companies I work with have paid dividends to policy owners uh, every single year for over 100 years. Um, one of the companies I work with was founded in 1905, and they've paid a dividend out to policy owners every year since then. So if you think about that, they have performed better than expected every year for 118 years or, or something like that. Um, so phenomenally conservative companies, the dividend is not guaranteed because it's based on performance, but it's been phenomenally consistent. Um, and so those two components is what creates that cash value buildup year over year over year. So these types of policies are going to grow by a larger amount every year for the rest of your life, um, no matter what you do. So the only the only caveat is that you have to pay your premiums. So as long as you're paying premiums, that policy is going to grow by a larger amount every single year, and there's really nothing you can do about it. Um, so to put that in perspective, uh, it, every individual is going to vary a little bit, but if I could general generalize a little bit, somewhere around seventy to eighty percent of the premium you pay in the first year will correlate to usable cash value in the policy, and then okay. in the next year. 
in the next year it gets more in the next year it gets more um and so so usually somewhere between year four and six um the amount of premium you put in in the in the one year you'll get more cash value increase than that in the policy and somewhere between year six and nine you're going to get to a point where the cash value has recovered all the premium paid to that point and then it continues to grow grow from there like i said by a larger amount every year uh, for the rest of your life okay so just to make sure we're getting uh, again to kind of bring this into perspective of my understanding as well as um, anyone that might be listening is that basically with this type of life insurance policy instead of your um you know premiums just kind of going into the ether if you will of just maintaining this policy it actually builds up some type of tangible value within it um call it kind of like a savings account you know to lack of a better analogy within that mm -hmm. plan. And then further from that, so your premiums go into that, you have a, a benefit. So you still have, you know, you walk out your front door and the school bus slams into you. Um, you have a benefit that's paid. Um, additionally to that, if, you know, with mutual companies kind of, you know, to use a, you know, to use something that we're familiar with, kind of like an ESOP, you know, you're participating in kind of a ownership stake of the underlying entity that in turn will then pay out a dividend if there are, you know, profits over and above them sort of certain mark, you know, they pay it out. In accordance to what the size of the policy is, X, Y, and Z, I'm sure there's a hugely complicated formula that goes into that. Um, but when those dividends are paid out, if you hold something like this, um, where it's a, again, a cash value whole life policy, is that correct? Cash value whole life? Correct. Yes. Cash value okay. whole life insurance. So if you have, have that type of policy, the, the profits are paid in and help to build that cash value or are those dividends paid out to the holder directly? So actually the policy owner has uh, that choice. So you can have that dividend uh, sent to you in cash um, or what we do with them when we structure these uh, these programs is we take that dividend and we buy what are called more uh, paid up additions. That's one of the riders I was referring to earlier. And so we take that dividend, we buy additional insurance, which then correlates to more cash value. Now, would that have the effect of increasing the policyholders premiums as well? Um, it does not. It does not have anything to do with the premium. So that, that dividend comes in and, and it at basically the dividend acts like a premium. It buys more insurance. Okay. So it's kind of, you know, kind of a, you know, kind of a feedback loop, if you will, of it comes in and then you're utilizing that to, you know, kind of, again, lack of better terms, it's paying its own premium for the additional insurance that's being bound, you know, in the structure that you're setting up for it in layman's terms, correct? correct? Yes, correct. Okay. So we got... Okay, so we're to the point where we have, you know, the basic framework of, you know, here's this type of cash value whole life plan, you're paying premiums in, it's for the term of your entire life. So when you buy it till when you eventually drop dead, um, and it builds up in, in an actual value, if you're invested in mutual type insurance companies, then you have additional revenues that could potentially but typically do come in help to again, bind more insurance, it kind of pays its own premium. So we're at this point. So we have something that's building up a value that can be accessed during the life of the policyholder. Now what? So there's a, a couple of distinctions um, what, that, that we should point out at this point. And one is that um, the premiums that you pay, the, the policy is covering you for your whole life, but that doesn't mean you have to pay the premiums for your whole life. So we can design the policy so that you pay premiums for a certain amount of time, um, and then you can stop paying premiums in a couple of different ways, and that policy will continue to perpetuate 
for life. So I, I, I want to make sure that we, we don't leave the impression that it covers you your whole life. You have to pay the premiums till the day you die. That is not the case. Um, in fact, it's quite common to structure these so that somewhere around retirement age, there would be no more premiums. Okay. Now, is that, but I'm assuming that would be kind of be a function of how long the policy has been in effect, or would it just be kind of how much of a, how like, do you get to kind of choose how much of a premium you want to pay? I'm assuming there's probably scales for that. Is it kind of a choice on like how much premium you want to pay or the term of it or the age of it? Let's get into because that's something I do want to kind of get into too. You know, you talk about an insurance policy. It's like, well, if I pay it till if I live till I'm a hundred, that's a lot of money I'm kicking out for this, you know, mm -hmm. regard of the, you know, benefit that I'm receiving. That's still a monthly bill that maybe I don't want to incur. So maybe kind of give an idea of like, you know, how, you know, how long you're paying these things for and how that looks like for how you can kind of, you know, essentially stop paying the premium on these things. Absolutely. So, so um, compared to other types of, uh, of investments where there are oftentimes restrictions, right? To put money in an IRA or a Roth or any of these things, there are restrictions on what you can contribute. Um, so with this tool, there are no restrictions. Um, you can put in as much as you want. And so you hit the nail on the head when you said it, you can really uh, put in, your premium is up to you. So, so you, the client, really determines how much premium do I want to put in. The second distinction I was referring to a moment ago is that you're, we have to kind of shift our thinking a little bit when we think about premiums. We started our conversation talking about term insurance and that premium really being an after-tax cost that we just have to bear. The premiums we're putting into these types of policies, um, we really have to think about those not so much as a cost as it is, this is money we're putting away. It's savings. It's, it's money that's being put away. Uh, yes, it's paying a premium for this life insurance, but it's building up this cash value. And so um, it's a difference between I, I want to put as much premium as I can. Right. So I want as big a premiums as I can. And that's counterintuitive for most people because we shop for insurance looking for the lowest premium for the biggest death benefit when we've shopped for life insurance. We're kind of flipping that around. We want to put as much premium as we can afford to put in the policy to build up as large a cash value as we can for as little death benefit as the IRS says we have to buy. Okay. That's kind of, that's definitely kind of an interesting thought because I, th I would think, and again, what I'm kind of getting from this is that, you know, you're utilizing this not again for the death benefit, but for to have, you know, to build up cash values, additional assets in your life, which would again, kind of help to supplant that death benefit. If you can leave enough assets and cash to your heirs, then, you know, the need to have a, you know, millions and millions of dollars of death benefit is kind of a moot point. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of the game is, you know, how do we, you know, enhance our current stature in life to therefore, you know, mitigate what happens when we're gone and also increase our current position. So is that kind of a, a guide? Is, is that kind of like the principle of this is to kind of get that here now? So that way the death benefit isn't as important. Yeah, with the bank on yourself concept, um, most people are definitely focused on the cash value side of the equation. That's that's what most of us think about. Um, however, the death benefit, as, as you alluded to, does create uh, a number of advantages too. So I always encourage people not to discount the death benefit. Um, it, it plays a, a vital role. Uh, one of the things I think about with death benefit, if we're using these cash values to make investments, and that's a distinction I always try to make, we don't compare the whole life policy to some other kind of investment um, or investment account. The, the whole life policy is a, is a vessel that we build up a pool of cash in 
that we then use as a platform to go make other investments. So it's we use the whole life policy in conjunction with other investing strategies. It's not either or, uh, it's both. And so one of okay. the things yeah, I think and, and about- that kind of assumed as much, yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think about with the death benefit is if I pull $200,000 out of a policy to make an investment, whether that's real estate or whatever investment I'm into, um, if something happens to me and I die before that investment completes, the death benefit is is the, is sitting back here that's going to come in and complete that for me, right? So that my, my heirs, my family, um, they have this lump sum that then comes in and delivers what that investment was going to do to begin with um, and help, you know, so it kind of self-completes. That's one of the ways I look at it. Um, but that death benefit also plays a role with estate planning, with income replacement for the for the spouse that survives. Um, you know, a lot of things like that come into play too. Yeah, and and I would assume, you know, and I think this is kind of, again, the trajectory that we're saying. So let's say you had pulled money out and we're definitely going to kind of hopscotching a little bit, but to the point of saying that, you know, let's say you had pulled it out and you had purchased, let's say, you know, taken that 200,000 out, purchased, let's say two rental homes and they still had outstanding balances on the mortgage, then, you know, the death benefit comes in, then your heirs, you know, again, they get that death benefit typically tax-free, right? Correct. Yeah. In most cases. Yeah. And then they can either, you know, help to, you know, let's say the, you know, mortgage payments, you know, a little bit over what their, you know, their, their debt servicing is, they can pay that down, then have the, again, the investments come to fruition with that death benefit. And then now they have assets um, that they have that are cash flowing or X, Y, and Z to kind of help complete that kind of, you know, when you're gone benefit to your heirs that, you know, keep them solvent um, after you're gone. Is that kind of painting with a broad brush? Yeah, exactly. Yep. I think you've got okay. it. So, you know, we've kind of, again, you know, alluded to this whole thing of getting money out of a uh, insurance policy while you're still living. And the concept for most people thinking it's like, well, you know, typically insurance doesn't pay out unless something happens. You know, I have homeowners insurance on my property, but if I want a new roof, um, you know, something has to damage it, you know, or like I have health mm -hmm. insurance, you know, I have to get sick or, you know, break my arm for them to pay something. So I incurred an expense and that's what it's there for. So let's get into Again, utilizing this type of cash value policy um, and, you know, kind of the other caveats that we've gone into, what's it look like to get money out of it? Um, and, you know, how does that work from, you know, the perspective of, you know, like functionally, how does that work? Um, you know, how does it work from a taxation standpoint? Because, you know, money, you know, the, the government always wants to get their hands on it somehow. Um, <laughs> For sure. But, you know, how, how does that kind of work with, you know, getting money out to do these kind of investments, specifically things like real estate while you're still living? Um, you know, that's kind of, I think, the, the crux of what we want to talk about. Absolutely. And so the, the unique feature here with, uh, with these life insurance contracts are that we can uh, there's two ways to get money out of the policy. So what, one way is, is we can surrender a portion of the policy, which is kind of like taking a withdrawal. We can just take money out and, and use it. Um, these policies grow tax deferred and we can, and we can pull up to our basis with, with no tax consequence. So essentially we're going to be taxed on any gains that we pull out. If we do a, a, a surrender or a withdrawal. That would be a, a, a rare thing. We rarely would, would suggest that for someone. The way that most of us are going to access the cash values in the policy is through what are called policy loans. So life insurance companies are highly regulated in what they, what they can invest in. They invest in things like highly rated bonds, highly rated mortgages, um, those kinds of things, um, amongst an other basket of things. But that's, that's the bulk of it. And one of the things that they can invest in are policy loans to their own policy owners. 
um, that's obviously considered a pretty safe investment for them. And so what's happening is the life insurance company will loan me as the policy owner up to about 90% of the cash value in my policy at, at any given time. And what they're doing is, is they're using the cash value in my policy as the limit of what I can borrow. And they're using the death benefit of my policy as the collateral. So when I take a policy loan, I'm getting a loan from the insurance company that's using my policy as collateral for that loan. Now, there's a couple of unique features with that loan process that make this uh, an appealing way to do things. One is that the insurance company does charge me an interest rate on that money that I'm borrowing from them, but it's a simple interest rate and they apply it once a year um, to, to the policy values. So uh, so there's some, there's some beneficial effect there because it's simple interest and depending on how fast I pay that loan down, I can reduce my effective rate pretty substantially. The other side of that coin is there's a feature called non-direct recognition that we're looking for. And this is where, because of that structure, where we're using the policy as collateral, the insurance company doesn't recognize the loan from your personal policy values, which means that the growth that we talked about, the actuarial guaranteed growth and those non-guaranteed dividends continue to accrue in your cash value on your policy as if you didn't borrow the money. So in our example from before, if I pulled 200000 out of my policy in the form of a policy loan to buy those two rental properties, my policy cash values are continuing to grow in the background while that loan's outstanding as if that 200000 was still there. Okay. So, so those two features combined, I can get extremely low interest rates on one hand, and on the other hand, my value, I don't give up anything in the policy by, by borrowing the money. It continues to grow as if it was still there. Okay, so a couple things to, to look at and unpack there. So we have the policy loans, um, which you know again could be something as basic as a you know a fee simple interest loan, uh, P and I, you know pretty straightforward. And then we also have the uh, non direct recognition. We'll get into that in a second. But a few mm -hmm. things I want to kind of unpack there is that you know okay, so you've built up a cash value. So basically, are you only a, how do they? Did, I guess my question, trying to formulate this in my head while I'm talking, is you know you have a cash value which is based on the dividends paid if you're in a mutual um, product, and then also the premiums that you've paid in. So basically, are you only able to borrow up to the amount of your premiums that you've paid in, plus any type of additional dividends that have been paid in by the mutual company, or is so, the um, is there a factor on that, like a multiple on that? So we also have the guaranteed growth. On top of the dividends, so <clears throat> so the there's a guaranteed growth factor in the in the cash values, and that's really an actuarial calculation over time. It gets more and more and more and more over time. Um, the 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 um, the dividends are non guaranteed, and they're on top of that. So there's those two components, and of course the premium you're paying is is what's creating all of this to begin with. So when you take a policy loan, you are taking it uh, on the full value of the policy. So that would include the growth and dividends that have that have built up, not just your premium. But the limit of what you can borrow is that cash value. So let's say let's say over the course of uh, to keep this simple, over the course of 10 years, we've put $100,000 in premium and the policy has a value of 125,000 we can borrow about 90% of that 125,000, right? We've got more cash value than premium that we put in and we can access about 90% of that in the form of a policy loan. Okay, so when, when you take a loan, obviously loans, um, 
are non-taxable income to you. So you, you know, take money mm -hmm. out. That's not going to be a taxable event, correct? Correct. Under current tax law, yes. Okay. So you take it out. Now, you're st I'm assuming, so that, that brings up a few things that definitely need to be covered is that one, I'm assuming you still have your premiums that have to be paid on the policy to keep it into effect. And then two, mm -hmm. um, you know, what does it look like as far as payments that have to be made on that loan? Um, you know, what does it look like in the event of default? Um, what are your obligations to ensure repayment of that loan uh, and the like? So let's kind of get into the nuts and bolts of, you know, functionally, you know, taking that loan out, what kind of obligations the policy holder unto and, you know, what kind of burden on payments are there as well? That's a great question, Alex. I'm, I'm glad we're segueing into that because that's really the third component that makes this, uh, this tool unique. And that is that these are non-recourse loans. Um, so there is actually no obligation whatsoever on the part of the policy owner to repay the loan. You technically don't ever have to repay it. Now, I always uh, advise my clients that you should be an, a quote-unquote honest banker, right? You, you, you should treat your your uh, borrowing functions from your policy like you would any other any other source of financing, any other bank or finance company, and pay your loans back. The advantage is that you have complete control over that process. So, for instance, I have clients who uh, flip real estate. And so they'll take a policy loan from their policy to purchase a property. They may not make any payments on that on that loan for six, eight, nine, 12 months. When they flip that property, they then pay the loan off in a lump sum. Perfectly fine, they can do that. Um, I have other clients who uh, who do it differently. They take the cash flow from a, from a rental property or from a syndication deal and they'll apply that to the policy loan over a term. Um, I'm, there's, I have a client working on one right now. It's a seven year deal. He's taking the cash flow from the from the uh, syndication investment, paying down the policy loan during the seven years, and then when he gets paid out at the end of seven years, he'll pay the remaining balance of the policy loan off, and then rinse and repeat, do it again. Now, as far as you know, I, the, and you know, this is kind of the minutia of strategy, but just kind of coming from my experience in real estate investing, you know, if you weren't paying that loan down, you wouldn't be able to capture you know, the interest is a write-off to the profits that would potentially be born from that deal, or because it's a personal non-recourse loan, would it be a moot point anyway with being able to have an interest write-off since it's a personal loan to you and not tied to that and not encumbering that real estate? Do you know about that per se? Uh, so that's where it's important to have your accountant involved. Uh, if you're going to be investing like this or, or using some of these tools this way, um, you want to have your accountant involved and make sure that you structure how that loan happens. So for instance, uh, you personally own the policy. You can make funds available uh, to an LLC who's the lender and, and create some uh, advantageous tax reporting that way. Um, but again, I'm not a tax advisor. I don't give tax advice. That would be something for your CPA, your accountant, um, to, uh, to help you structure based on the state and the circumstance you're in to, to make that effective. Yeah, it's, that's kind of the same answer I give most people. The, the, the broad answer of what I think you said is that it depends. <laughs> I'm yeah, talking with, talk with, <laughs> yeah, exactly. talk with the tax advisor and they can, uh, they can, they can certainly hash that out for you. Um, now with regard to, again, you said, you know, it's non-recourse, you're under not, not necessarily an obligation to repay, but, uh, you know, if you are in, 
you know, what kind of term are these loans pegged on? I mean, you could essentially, you know, if all else remaining equal, if there's no, you know, cap on that, you could just write a, you know, hundred year note to yourself. And if you don't make payments and you're never, and it's not recourse, you couldn't be technically in violation, but you know, with any, any note, there's going to be terms to it. So, you know, if you don't make payments, does the, you know, does the lender have the ability to call the note? Um, you know, if you're not making payments, obviously you're in violation of the, you know, the term agreement of that note. So, what obviously you know you should and i kind of agree with you practice good faith when when doing things you know if you agree to yes. repay the money you should probably repay the money um so what does that look like um you know are you paying a lot of penalties when you repay if you hadn't made payments on the note if you took it out to do investments or you know the like no not not at all so there first of all there's really no note um there's no qualifying there's no application when you, you so you have a policy you call the insurance company up and you or you call me your agent or whoever and you go hey i'd like to pull a policy loan how you know do i qualify they're going to look and they go yep you have a policy it has cash value in it you qualify that's it that's the only qualification um well, great. How much can I borrow? Well, you can borrow 90% of the amount of cash value you have. Okay, perfect. They're going to send you a form. You're going to sign the form uh, and they're going to direct deposit the loan proceeds within about a week. I mean, it's that simple. Okay. Okay. So the repayment is entirely up to the policy owner. So we can, uh, what I do with my clients is I talk to them about how their situation is and I run the numbers for them and say, okay, if you pay it off over five years, this is how much you're going to need to pay on a monthly or annual basis. And this is how the interest scenario is going to work out. And then I'll also pull there, like the, the gentleman I mentioned that has the, the syndication deal he's working on, we pull the investment projections into it and I can, I can plot all that out for them on exactly what this is going to, going to work out to be. Um, and so, you know, they may come back and say, well, let's, I don't, I don't really need to pay it in five years. Let's do it in 10 years. And I can run the numbers that way. So you're right. They could give themselves a hundred year note um, or, or the equivalent of a hundred year note and just never pay it off. Now there is a risk to that. And it's very important that we talk about this risk. And that is if we don't pay anything against the loan ever, the, the interest is going to get capitalized into that balance year after year after year after year after year. And there will come a point where the loan balance will exceed the cash value balance. Now, in most cases, unless it's a very large amount, uh, that will take many, many, many years. But when that happens, the insurance company, it has a legal obligation to terminate that policy. They cancel it. And the IRS is going to determine that all that loan money and all the growth in that policy over those years that it took for it to finally lapse was all a taxable event. So there's a giant tax yeah. bill coming, right? Um, so yeah. that's the risk and, and why it's super important to pay the loans back. And, um, you know, because that can bite you on the tax side if, if you're not responsible and you don't pay those loans back. Um, the exception to that is that we do take these cash values when someone's ready to retire and convert them to passive income streams. So we take this cash value and essentially annuitize the cash value into an income stream and we plot those income streams to last well beyond age 100 um, so that effectively and these are the only time we don't pay loans back so we use that that surrender or that withdrawal up to the basis and then we switch to loans and continue to pull that that income stream out um, with the idea being that ultimately the death benefit 
will eliminate that loan after someone passes. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, that kind of definitely bring, brings that more full circle on how that death benefit can be used. Now, to the point of, you know, keeping a policy in good standing, I think you mentioned, you know, if the policy is terminated, then you have things like the value of the policy plus any outstanding loans could become, you know, potentially taxable event to the uh, to the policyholder. So in that, you know, scenario, we have this cash balance. We've borrowed against it. We've done X, Y, Z. We're doing that kind of stuff. Um, you know, but let's say something happens and you can't make the pop, the premium payment. What happens in that scenario? So if you can't make a premium payment, um, there's a, a number of things that can be done within the policy. I mentioned that there there's a point where you can stop paying premium. And so there's a status we can give the policy where they'll reduce the death benefit substantially and no more premiums are due ever. Um, you can't now that also means you can't put premium in ever. So you can't start it back up again. Once you do this, then then that policy is, but, but the policy will stay in force and it'll continue to grow and it'll do all the things that you can borrow against it, et cetera, um, for the rest of your life. So there's that scenario. Um, another scenario that's quite common um, is usually when someone can't pay a premium, it's temporary, right? They, they lost a source of income. They've had some something happen that put them in a financial situation where they can't pay premium. And so in that case, um, we can actually pay the minimum premium out of the cash value in the policy. We can offset the cash value in the policy to cover the premium. So, you know, I've had situations where maybe two years they, they can't make the premium. And so for two years, they use the cash value in the policy either as a loaner or a surrender to cover those minimum premiums. Um, and then and then they pay those loans back once they're back on their feet and they get back on track, you know in the third year. So there, there's a okay. lot of different yeah. ways we can, we can have flexibility with those premium payments. Gotcha. But, um, would it be the case if you had borrowed, let's say the, you know, 90% of the cash value of the plan, would that also affect the ability to use that cash value to pay premiums? Uh, it would to the extent that there's not enough cash value left to pay the premiums. Okay. So, Okay, um, gotcha. So, and the other thing too is with the the way the policies are structured, you know, let's say somebody sets it up and they have a twenty four thousand dollar a year maximum premium that they're putting into their policy. The minimum premium in that scenario is is probably something like four or five thousand dollars a year. So we have a lot of situations where maybe I can't hit the twenty four thousand this year, but the but the minimum four thousand is not a problem. And we can just okay. pay gotcha. that minimum amount and then and then pick up again when we have the money later. Sounds good. Great. So um, this has been fascinating, but unfortunately, we're kind of coming up towards the end of our time. So, um, you know, the focus is, again, and I want to make sure we get any uh, coherent points on the aspects of the, you know, pulling this out. I think we've kind of covered the functionality of getting it out of a, of a plan to be able to do these investments. Now, specifically... Again, um, you know, you, your, your ability to pull the cash out while you're still living and then be able to plug it into investments. Now, once you let's say you have, again, borrowed that money, um, you continue to make your premium payments. Can you build up additional cash value in the plan to take another note or amend that note? Or are you under the obligation to only take out at one chunk at a time? Yeah, the the repayment on the policy loan works like a revolving account. So every every payment you make against the loan frees up an equal amount of cash value again. So you you can have multiple okay. loans simultaneously up to the limit of your of your cash value amount. And I, I think one of the key points with doing this for investments 
And the reason I describe this as not comparing it to an investment, it's something you use with investments, is that you're you're building up the equity in the policy. You can borrow the money and that equity continues to build at the same pace that it would have. And then on the other side, you've got the investment and you're building up whatever profit, whatever equity you've got in that investment. And so you're getting the combination of the two at the end of the day. The, the equity mm-hmm. and the policy is yeah. kind of this modest growth that's plodding along year after year after year, getting stronger and stronger. And then you're using that to go make this investment over here where you know you, you make a great return, you make great profit. And at the end of the process, you've got both the equity and the policy that's built up plus the equity and the investment. So it really just enhances any investment that you're going to make. Yeah. And I'm assuming kind of to go back to the issues I said with, you know, paying uh, premiums, when you ta- when you set these plans, you can kind of tailor that out. I'm assuming working with someone like you, you kind of have a, you know, a very realistic goal. It's like saying, hey, look, here's what the maximal thing that we can put in here. But, you know, I, I'm a very conservative, you know, for being 34, I'm, you know, like I should have way more gray hair than how conservative I am. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, you know, of looking at it, you can say, okay, you know, I really want to make sure, you know, if anything hits the fan, you know, we're really tight on this. You know, I want to have my minimum premium be, let's say, you know, a thousand bucks or, you know, $3,000 a year. So that way I can say, you know, you know, if I'm, you know, basically just paying my mortgage and light bill, I can still afford to have this benefit there. When I finally get back on my feet, we can have, you know, the upside of how much I want to pay. But these things are highly customizable. Is that a, that's a fair assessment? Extremely customizable. Everyone is, okay, is customized to each individual. Yeah, and that's I think that's the good thing to to kind of take away from this. And then additionally, are you under an obligation? Let's say you know, because I'm assuming that the terms of these things can't really be modified too much. You know, if you say, hey, you know, I have it. Here's my minimum. Here's my maximum. Can you modify that in the future, or could you have another policy that you create to then in turn maybe have a bigger one? If you you know, let's say you really get in the swing of your career, you're making good investments, and you want to have additional benefits from stuff like this. Can you have multiple policies? Yes, and that's uh, you're exactly right. Uh, once you establish that maximum amount, it can, you can't exceed that in any given year. So that if you if you wanted yeah. to exceed that, then you would set up another policy. Uh, I know people who have upwards of thirty policies. Um, you know, they've been doing this for decades and, and they just keep yeah. opening new policies. So yeah, obviously there's a limit to the amount of death benefit that an insurance company will issue on a single life. That limit is usually yeah. quite high for for most people. Um, but that's really the only limitation is the the amount of death benefit. Okay, great. So just to kind of bring this in for a landing, um, and I, I, I'm sure we could go on for, for a very long time on this, is that, uh, you know, the big thing that we're talking about um, on these types of policies would be a uh, whole life with a cash ba- with a cash value um, component to it, that when you invest these kind of things within, um, you know, certain types of companies, especially mutual companies that underwrite these policies, you have additional kickers that are going to pay in as kind of like an ESOP of profits to these things, um, you know, the components of borrowing against these are you know very analogous to what you look like with a retirement plan on that you know you can borrow up to a certain ratio of money from them like a 401k you know those things are typically again check with your tax account non-taxable mm-hmm. uh, you can utilize those things in order to you know make other alternative investments mainly you know kind of what you focus on is real estate or real estate adjacent investments tangible hard assets uh, you know these being non-recourse loans generate no obligation to repay them but again just like you and I agree go in good faith, you know, repay these things. The benefit to repaying these things is probably going to outweigh not repaying them in the long run. By far, Um, by far. And, uh, you know, again, that kind of painting with a broad brush, I think that's very interesting. Um, And especially although this doesn't doesn't hit on something that could be an asset of an IRA, it definitely helps to kind of illustrate how you can get additional money to make, you know, 
tangible hard asset um and again i hate the term alternative assets but you know alternative asset investments um you know with things personally and helps you get more cash than you otherwise might think is available to you just by you know working a nine-to-five saving in your retirement plan again to help augment that and give you additional benefits um you know while you're still alive anything that you want to add as a capstone to this there is one last thing that I would add, and that is who you sure. work with. The the person you work with to set this up for you is extremely important. Um, what what happens sometimes is people will hear about the concept and they'll they'll run down to any insurance person they know, uh, and that person uh, will often say, "Sure, I can do that." But if these policies aren't structured with the right writers and they aren't structured in the right proportions, uh, they can become what's called a modified endowment contract, a MEC. And that will wipe out most of the tax advantages uh, in the policy. And so I've, unfortunately, I've seen this too many times uh, where, where someone will will interact with me and say, yeah, I've got one of those policies. And then you know, they send me over the, the, the statement and I look at it and well, unfortunately it wasn't structured correctly and you know, so it's really important to work with an agent that has the training and the experience to structure these policies so that they work the way that we've been talking about today, um, because Great. it can be set up incorrectly. Um, and so, you know, seek out an agent that really knows what they're doing. Of course, I'm happy to work w with anybody that that would like to find out more about this. Fantastic. Well, I would highly encourage if, uh, you know, I, I am a, uh, I'd like to think myself very knowledgeable in many things, but uh, I am definitely kind of in the uh, group of people learning things today. So if people want to get in touch with you to learn more about this, um, you know, pretty fascinating topic, I feel, uh, you know, how can they get in touch with you? Um, you know, where, where can people find you to kind of learn more about this? Yeah, if people are intrigued by this and think this might be a good fit in their life, um, and like I said at the very beginning, it's not a fit for everyone. I always, I often kind of joke that it's, it'll work for anyone, but it's certainly not for everyone. Um, the best thing to do is just uh, have a have a conversation and find out a little more about whether it's a fit. So I've set up a landing page. It's called uh, Jump On with John. That's J O H N John. Jump On with John dot com, and uh, you can grab a free 20, 30 minute strategy session with me. Um, it's just a conversation to to find out a little more about you and a little more about how this works and and start that process of finding out if this is a fit for you. So that, that's the best recommendation I can make is just have a conversation, uh, no obligation, no pressure, just a conversation at uh, jumponwithjohn.com. All right, fantastic, John. I really appreciate you being on with us today. You were uh, certainly a wealth of knowledge on this topic. And, uh, you know, I always enjoy these conversations when I get to learn something. Um, I had another great podcast this week about uh, the ins and outs of investing in uh, how uh, industrial real estate syndications are, are set up for heavy industrial manufacturing buildings. So I didn't learn a lot this week. I learned about life insurance, industrial real estate. So one of the benefits of hosting this podcast is uh, getting to talk to subject matter experts like yourself. Again, my name is Alex Perney. This has been the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. I want to thank our guest, John Inslee, for being on with us today. Please do uh, check him out if you want to get more information on this topic at hand. Thank you very much for joining, and we'll see you on the next one. Want to hear more episodes of the Alternative Investing Advantage? Search podcast at advantaira.com and subscribe.